does a young earth creationist insist that the that the flood was a global flood that covered the entire earth sphere why is that necessary to their position okay if you remember we had a couple positions that we looked at briefly you can see most of them center on the idea that the young earth creationist needs to be able to explain a lot of fossil theory and a lot of global plate tectonics in a very short amount of time okay when we watched the debate between young earth and old earth you saw that almost every answer was what the flood when you asked about how could the plates have moved so far in one year what was the answer the flood how did all the fossils get there the flood okay how did the earth's climate change so radically the flood everything was the flood okay so from a young earth creationist view you need a flood to explain the fossil record okay up until a few years ago young earth creationists actually just denied outright the fossil record now that they've been confronted with more and more evidence it seems difficult to deny it so they'll say that the flood account is what caused all fossilization okay that includes the dinosaur fossilization which means also the dinosaurs were on the ark and I say that sometimes with a smile but there are whole web pages designed to how the dinosaurs fit on the ark okay answers in Genesis the leading young earth creationist along with the Institute for creation research both have books on how the dinosaurs fit on the ark if you want to check them out you guys know I brought them with me last week I bought those books so you can read them if you want to okay so let's look at this. The global flood is required because they look at the words of scripture. We're going to do that tonight as well because the old earth creationists look at the words as well. It's required to explain the plate tectonics, the fossil record. It's needed to explain how the earth looks like it's millions of years old. And finally, they look at this promise of God never to flood the earth again and destroy mankind. They think it needs to be global because, of course, we've had regional and local floods. That would be a break of God's promise. Let's go to the next slide. Just one more thing to review. These are the arguments that a young earth creationist makes and we are going to analyze them tonight. They're actually good arguments. I think they're very strong. Why would you need an ark if the God wasn't going to flood the entire sphere? Noah and the animals could have just moved to the next valley. If it wasn't a global flood, why would the animals even need to be in the ark? What about the birds? Couldn't they just move? Why did they have to get on the ark? If they were going to survive, they could have just gone outside of Mesopotamia and moved. That would have been easy enough. Okay, we look at the need for universal judgment. God is doing something in the flood. It's not just about water flooding the earth. There's something going on here. God is casting down his judgment on mankind. And if there are people outside of Mesopotamia, he needs to cast his judgment on those people. So the thinking goes, if they're outside of the area, you've got to flood the whole earth if there's people outside the area. We have verses that dictate that the waters rise above the highest mountains. If the waters are going to rise above the highest mountains is what the verse said. And last week we read all three chapters out of Genesis. Probably the longest scripture reading you'll ever hear in your life. Three whole chapters to understand the flood account. You remember the verses and you remember how many times the dictates seem to be all the earth, all mankind, all things that breathe, all things that have air in their nostrils. It seemed like God could not be any clearer that it was going to be everything. That's a very strong argument for a global universal flood. That the words of scripture repeat at least 30 times that it's going to be everything, all. They don't have like a just in your little region. Young Earth creations point to the duration of the flood that it took a year and one month for the floodwaters to go down. So that just couldn't have been a local flood. That implies a global flood as well. And of course, we go back to the promises of no more floods. Okay. Any questions about Young Earth view from last week? That's just a quick review. All right. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah, Eric.
Okay, so you're saying that all freshwater fish would be inundated with a global flood because of the saline. Dr. Eric Calderon, a noted aquatic biologist. <laughs> Let me comment on that just so that we can round out the discussion because you guys know that all questions are fair here. If the world's water level Right now, to flood the entire Earth, first of all, we're gonna talk about this in a second, but we only have 22% of the water available to flood the entire Earth, okay? Most of the water we have on the Earth resides in the oceans. 70% of the mass of the surface is ocean. If you were to flood the entire Earth, you would definitely affect the non-saltwater ecosystems. It would not do anything to the saltwater ecosystems. There's just not enough fresh water in the world to affect their salinity in the oceans. But you're, you're correct that that does impact all of the species that live in freshwater. So yes, you would have had to put those on the ark. But we're going to see in a moment that you have bigger problems with the ark than just what species you put on it. Okay, because last week we talked about the penguins coming down from Antarctica into Mesopotamia, which is a desert area, and that's kind of a hard stretch, but the, again, the, the young earth creation is gonna say that somehow that was part of the miracle. I'll get to that again when I come back to the question of the ark. Here is the old earth creationist response. Okay, remember we're looking for theories first and trying to understand why is this even a debate. Here's the old earth creationist response. Young earth creationists, according to the old earth, are using a modern day view of the world and modern interpretation of words and imposing their views on the antediluvian world. The antediluvian world, of course, meaning the pre-flood world. So you guys saw in the debate, how many times did Dr. Hoven refer first to the King James Bible, okay? And second of all, he wanted to say, the God I worship, remember every sentence began with the God I worship, his 10 word answer. The God I worship is a God who wants his text to be known clearly and plainly and he would read right out of an English Bible. Ignoring completely, in my opinion, the fact that people spend years in seminary trying to understand the original text so they can understand what the people meant when they wrote it. So you take it completely out of context and put it in a 21st century view, at least that's what an old earth creationist will say. For example, look at the language dialogue. Last week I said it was a very strong argument that the Lord re repeated in his instructions to Noah that he would destroy everything under the entire heavens and that every living thing on the face of the earth. Look at those two phrases. An old earth creationist will tell you those must be interpreted in light of the people who wrote them, not in a 21st century view, not reading an English Bible in a global world where you can cross back and forth now in 10 or 12 hours. Okay, you gotta look at it from a people who live in a confined region and what did they mean in their limited language that didn't have as many words as our language does when they meant words like un under the entire heavens, okay? To the old earth creationist, the answer is that last line on the board. To ancient societies, the world constituted what was known to people at that time. That was the world, okay? Now, I think it's an interesting argument, but let's look at it from scripture so we're not just speculating. Go to the next slide. Here's a couple verses that are kind of hard to see, so I'll read them for you, but here's some verses in the Bible that use the same kind of phraseology that common sense tells us didn't mean the entire world. Could have meant it. I'll leave the door open. But take a look at Genesis 41:56, the famine in Egypt. The Bible says the famine was over the entire face of the earth, okay? The, the story goes on to say that people from all over the world came to Joseph in the storehouses in Egypt. You guys remember the story? Joseph goes to Egypt, builds the storehouses because he has the dream, and the whole world comes. Is it the whole world? You think people from China came? What about the Aborigines in, in Australia? Did they get in boats and go to Egypt to pick up some grain? It's just a question because the way it's written, it says the same language, the same Hebrew words, by the way, underlie these English words that I'm using. The famine was over all the face of the earth. Just substitute the flood. The flood was over all the face of the earth, okay? 
Here's another example. 1 Kings 10, 24, the wisdom of Solomon. The whole world sought audience with Solomon. The whole world sought audience with Solomon. Again, do you think the Chinese showed up to ask him what he thought? Maybe. But do you think they meant that when they wrote it? That's the question to look at. The, the intent, okay? And I said, I'll leave the door open, but I want you to see where the old earth creationist is coming from. They're arguing a language perspective that probably the guys who lived in Africa might have shown up, but maybe the guys, if there were any living in North America, probably didn't show up to ask Solomon what he thought. Figurative and literal are two words I think we're not going to use in this debate because I think that both young earth and old earth creationists will tell you that they believe in the literal inerrancy of the Bible. Literal. The question is, even when you look at literal inerrancy, you still have a job of translation. I'll give you an example of why. Look at the last verse. This is 2 Peter 3, 3 through 6, okay? Written in the Greek. So we have, like, we're looking at literal inerrancy, okay? Peter is explaining his view, by the way, about the flood. And he says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. He's making an analogy back to the flood. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, I'm not going to take a position on this because I'm not a linguist, but I'll tell you what the old earth creationist makes out of this statement. The Greek word for world there is cosmos. It has different meanings. You can pick four. Cosmos meaning the entire universe, the entire earth, okay, the heavenly creation, or even just a portion of the earth. We have the same problem when we were looking at that Hebrew day yom when we looked at the creation days. So you have three possible meanings of yom. You have four possible meanings of cosmos. We're looking for literal truth, but how do you interpret which meaning did he attribute? Now, a Greek scholar will say because he added the word at that time, he's trying to limit it to a smaller world than like the whole cosmos, meaning the whole universe. Clearly the whole universe wasn't flooded. So we have at least a context to begin with, but was it the whole earth or was it a smaller portion of the earth? The old earth creationists will argue that because the words at that time were tacked on, then it's a smaller meaning. But I want you to identify that they're both looking at it and trying to interpret the literal meaning. Neither one of them think it's figurative. Here's the point. An old earth creationist is arguing that it did not cover the whole earth and that the language itself, same language that the young earth creationist insists must have meant that it covered the whole earth. The, the old earth creationist looks at it and says, look at the language carefully. In other places in the Bible, that same exact language does not imply the whole earth. It makes more rational sense to believe it implies their known world. Okay, Just like when they would say that when Paul says that the gospel had reached throughout the whole known world, I don't think he meant that it reached the Eskimos. He was talking about the Roman Empire. Okay, But it could mean that it had reached the Eskimos. It's not that it's impossible. <laughs> With God, anything's possible. But we're trying to look at what's the most probable meaning, especially when these languages we're looking at have multiple meanings of the same literal word. You're saying, how did Peter know that the world was contained to a smaller area? Well, there's two things I would raise. One would be, we have to understand that anybody who's writing scripture is being influenced by the Holy Spirit in anything they're writing. That's number one. Number two is these are the same Hebrew scriptures that they studied that we're, I mean, we've adopted their scriptures. So I'm sure that they have discussed and studied and thought about these things as much as we have about the flood, how much did it cover, what was it all about, okay? What I'd like to point out is that the assumption in their eyes was always that it was a localized flood. It wasn't until 
we got into the global era of, of, of history that we began to globalize the flood. All the early epics about the flood, even the ones that are non-Christian or, or non-Judeo-Christian, they imply a more localized flood in a lot of ways, okay? And the world just was comfortable believing they were the only people on the earth. It wasn't until young earth creationists were, were posed with this, how do you explain all these other things that they went, wait a minute, during the flood, it covered the whole earth and this is what happened, okay? Again, I'm gonna tell you right now openly, the flood could have covered the whole earth. An old earth creationist will tell you it's improbable, it's not scientific, it doesn't make sense that God would do it. But if it did, the old earth creationist argument doesn't fail. But the young earth creationist has to have the flood because they have nothing else to hang their hat on. Okay? And I think that's an important point to make, by the way. Both the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists agree that everybody was wiped out. The old earth creationist just says that you don't have to flood the whole earth to do that because everybody was living in the same area. And the old earth creationist says you don't have to kill the penguins because they're not even part of what you're doing. You're just trying to kill what's in that one region which we'll come back to in a moment. Yes. I think there's a flood story in almost every ancient society. In most ancient societies, a, a large-scale flood is probably the worst terror you could ever encounter. That's probably why they survived so much. Now, there's again differing interpretations, but one is the entire world began in the Mesopotamian Peninsula. Even archaeologists who are secular believe that. So no matter where you went from the world from that point forward, you're going to carry with you this flood myth. Okay? Now, we believe it really happened, but even if you're just going to look at it from a secular perspective, that it's just something that happened in ancient history that somebody handed down as a myth, every society is a derivative of that one society, so it's going to carry the myth forward. Second of all, it's very probable that big floods happened in different areas. Maybe not as big as one that would wipe out all mankind, but a pretty big flood you know, I mean, just think of like the tsunami disaster. If that had happened into an ancient society, you would pass that down for many, many years, you know, as a huge disaster that occurred. And water disasters were probably the most common in the ancient world that would be passed down. So just because the Chinese have a flood story does not mean it was this flood. But if it was this flood, it makes sense because everybody derived from the same region in the first place. What we're, what we're trying to look at is this flood that's in the Bible has been called improbable by secular geologists because they think no flood could have wiped out the whole earth, especially if your Bible teaches that it covered the whole earth because there's just not enough water to cover the whole earth. That's improbable. The young earth creationists cling to it, of course, like we've talked about, because they've got to justify their fossil record and their tectonics. Old earth creationists are only talking about the flood, not because they care what the young earth creationists think, but because they're trying to show the secular world that the flood story in Genesis is probable. Because it's been misinterpreted to be a global flood, it's actually a localized flood that did wipe out everybody in the world, but they were all living in one region. Okay, and that's why it's so important to the old earth creationists to explain that it was localized, not so much because any of their science depends on it, other than they look for science and they want to try to prove that the Bible and science are consistent. But they're trying to answer secular geologists who laugh at anybody who reads the Bible and says, there's just not enough water. And the old earth creationist responds, you're misinterpreting what the Bible says. You're listening to what our brethren have interpreted, and that's not actually what we believe it says. I'll give you an example. Where did the ark rest? Anybody know where the ark landed? Yeah, everybody says Mount Ararat. It didn't land on Mount Ararat. In the Bible, it says in the mountains of Ararat, which is like a huge mountain chain. 
So you've seen these specials like they're in search of the Ark on Mount Ararat, and there's like all these scientists who laugh at the people looking on Mount Ararat because Mount Ararat is so high. You know, it's like at an elevation of 16,000 feet. I mean, that would have needed a global flood to get the, the Ark that high up there, okay? But at the end of the mountain chain, way down near Mesopotamia, it's just a few hundred feet and up, there's hills that are part of the mountains of Ararat. So the, the ark probably landed down there, but everybody in their mind, when they read mountains of Ararat, just say, oh, there's a place called Mount Ararat, that's where it landed. That's a common way that like, people have to go back and say, that's not what the Bible says. You know? And so older creations are just trying to correct the record. Like, you'll never find the ark. It's not going to be found. You know, all these in search of the ark type things, they're trying to look at it and say, first of all, you're not going to find it on Mount Ararat. You probably won't find it anywhere. Because if the ark landed and you were going to build a new society, the first thing you would do is dismantle the wood <laughs> and rebuild with it. Where are you going to find that much wood that's finely cut into beautiful pieces, you know, in a land that's been deluged by a flood? You would probably just go, just take this thing apart and build home. So it's questions like that where dive into it. the old earth creations are trying to do. They're kind of stuck in the middle. They're trying to respond to secular world and explain that the Bible is defensible. While they're trying to defend themselves against the young earth creations who call them heretics for taking this ground, that maybe there's an explanation where science and the Bible can actually agree. Look at some of the things that an old earth creationist says about the flood. This is their commentary. First of all, they point out, as most secular geologists do, in fact, almost every secular geologist, unless they belong to the young earth creationist view, there is not enough water on the earth to fill the earth in a global flood. We have a fifth of the amount of water. Now the young earth creations will respond and say, well, at the time of the flood, the earth was flat. So there was no need for a lot of water. Now I don't mean flat like, not round. I mean, there was no terrain to the earth. It was a smooth sphere. But that would mean that all of the tectonics that have ever occurred on earth occurred during the one year of the flood. First of all, geologists strongly disagree. And they look at the plates. I mean, they're moving at inches a, you know, a year but the young earth creationists say all the plates just smashed into each other and created mountains in that one year. Think about a bathtub filling up for a second. Okay, put the ark in the bathtub, out of the big, whatever you call it, what's that thing called, the fountain, whatever it's called, the faucet. The faucet is just, I mean, just turn it on all the way up, all right, hard as you can. It's just gushing water. Put the ark in the tub, all right? What happens to the ark? It might move around a little bit, all right? Now, take a fire hose instead of the faucet and aim it at the ark. What's going to happen to the ark, okay? It's just going to break apart. And that's what most secular geologists point out. If you're going to have a flood that is going to create the Himalaya Mountains in one year, imagine the force of this flood. Most floods, they flood an area, and things like the ark just kind of float up, float up, float up as the water rises. Remember, this is an ark made out of wood and basically like with some petroleum tar type stuff that's sealing it, all right? We're not talking about, well, I was gonna say the Titanic, but that's not a good example, is it? We're not talking about like some battleship here. We're talking about something made out of wood that's a football field and a half long that's weighed down by brontosaurus and T-Rex, according to the young earth creationists, all right? This is a heavy piece of thing, but it's held together by wood. If there's a flood that's gonna make mountains, build volcanoes, move plates apart, this flood is toast. There is no way the flood is going to survive the kind of torrential flood that's, that is described, okay? So the young earth creation is going to say, well, it was flat, and then it became like this after the flood. Without even thinking about that, most secular geologists kind of turn off their radar and go, look, we can see plate tectonics at work. We know why the Himalayas are going where they are. They're the fastest growing mountain chain in the world. They rise 15 centimeters a year. Why? 
because they're the intersection of two plates, one's going up and one's going underneath it. We, we can predict what's happening. It didn't happen because of a flood. The other thing is, I would think that if the flood was that catastrophic, you would have seen something in Scripture. Notice in Scripture it says that the waters were above the mountains. That means the mountains were already there. So if you're going to say the flood created the mountains, then how do you use the mountains to describe how high the flood was? It doesn't make much sense. Okay, number two objection by old earth creationists. There is just not enough room on the ark for all the animals. Now, I know that I've told you that if you read the book by Answers in Genesis, or if you read the, the materials by Institute for Creation Research, they spend a lot of time explaining how the dinosaurs and all those people could fit on the ark. Remember a couple things. Not only do you have to feed them on the ark, you got, so you got room for food, you got to take care of them, you got your own stuff, you got to take care of their waste. Maybe they're dumping it overboard, I don't know. All right. There's a lot of room, a lot of animals. Here's the key, though. Young Earth creationists admit that there's not enough room on the ark for all of the species that we know today. All right? Here's the thing. We're only talking about 5,000 years ago, and they don't believe in evolution. So that means that all the species that existed 5,000 years ago that we know are existing today. So all you have to do is run around the earth today. Remember, they have a global flood, so they have a big problem. They've got to count every species known to mankind today and say, I'm sorry, those animals were all on the ark. There's just not enough room. I don't care how big this ark is. You could have five arcs. It's not going to fit all the species on the earth. Now, here's the response. The young earth creationists claim that not all species were on the ark, but only the families that led to the species we have today. What this means is, no, no, not evolution. Just, you know, like, they didn't have, what is it like a, like a, like a horse and a donkey get together and have a mule, right? Okay, so mules weren't on the ark. They would say like horses and donkeys were. Because anything that could create the other thing didn't need to be on the ark, just the basic ingredients to bake the cake. So let me give you an example. They actually think that horses and zebras weren't on the ark, just a common ancestor that could have led to the horses and the zebras. Here's another one. They actually believe that tigers, lions, leopards, cheetahs, panthers, bobcats, and even house cats were represented by just one thing on the ark. And then when it got off, it just went bloop and like <laughs> spawned like all those different things because they've got a problem. They can't fit them on the ark, all right? Now, I criticize secular scientists when they can't prove evolution and the mathematics are admitted wrong. They are admitted by, by secular mathematicians that it would take a universe hundreds of billions of years older than our universe is to ever get to evolution working out mathematically. So instead of admitting there might be a god, they go out and they say that a super alien race started it all, okay? I think they're full of it. But I gotta tell you that when the young earth creationists say that lions, tigers, cheetahs, panthers, bobcats, house cats, leopards, I mean, what are these guys, Siegfried and Roy, like they know this stuff, like they're crossbreeding things. When they say that they all came from a common ancestor just to justify all the things you would have to put into an ark, then I kind of look at them and say, you know, you sound like you're just as bogus as the other guys. You sound like you're getting caught short where the improbability is getting so high. And that's what will stop you to go, well, the God I worship can do anything. I know, but what you just told me is that the God that you worship did something weird. <laughs> that, that he doesn't even say he did in the Bible. It's not mentioned anywhere that there was a common ancestor to all these things and suddenly they just spawned all these different species from one common ancestor. That doesn't, it doesn't say anything like that in the Bible. When we were watching the debate between Ken Hovind and, 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 and Hugh Ross, you remember they got into this whole thing about can a tiger and a zebra and a ligra, and I couldn't understand why they were spending so much time on it, but it's because the young earth creationists put so much of a stock in this theory that 
once they got off the ark, these kinds were able to reproduce different things that they're not necessarily evolving. They're just saying that, hey, these have common ancestors. I guess in their mind, a house cat and a lion could have babies. I don't know, it's possible. Now you're stuck coming up with weird answers because they don't fit on the ark. Is there a biologist in the house? Does a zebra and a horse have any kind of common, do they, can they? What do they call them, a zorse? What do they put them together? Let's go to the next slide. Okay, next slide, Elise. There we go, right there. Okay, here is another big problem for young earth creationists. Remember, they say the flood caused all fossilization. Okay, now I told you that, that just that alone makes them have to put the dinosaurs on the ark because all the other dinosaurs perished in the flood. But they had a couple left over that apparently walked around until Jurassic Park. Now, but let's look at another type of fossil. I'm not gonna even talk about the number of animals. It's on the screen, but there's just not enough Earth's surface to have all the animals live at the same time. But there's also not enough solar sunlight to support the amount of plants that exist in the fossil record. Let's go backwards. We know how much fossil fuel is in the ground. We know how much coal, we know how much oil, petroleum, other fossil fuels. We know how much there is in the ground. Why? Because we've been using it. All right, it's a good estimate of how much we have. We look for it all the time. It's probably one of the most known commodities on the earth. We also know how many plants it takes to make the amount we have. And basically, we have so much fossil fuel in the earth that the earth could have never had that much vegetation to support that much fossil fuel being created. In other words, if you took one day of the flood or one year, all the vegetation on the earth dying and perishing and turning into fossil fuel would produce about one-tenth of the amount of coal deposits, just coal. Now, how do we know that the Earth can't support more? Because the young Earth creationists will immediately tell you, well, back then, the Earth was like a tropical wonderland and there was just lush life everywhere. Well, the problem with that is lush tropical wonderland plants need photosynthesis. Don't you feel like you're in biology again? It's so great. They need photosynthesis. Remember photosynthesis? It's how plants turn sunlight into food, remember, and they grow. We know that the Earth receives a constant amount of sunlight from the sun on an average, it can only support so much plant and animal life. There's just not enough sunlight to have this jungle that's being described. And by the way, it would have to be on top of itself. I mean, imagine if just the earth sustaining plant life all around the globe would give us only one-tenth of the coal deposits we have in the earth. That's a lot of photosynthesis just for the coal deposits. Multiply it by 10, which is impossible, but try it. You would only have enough to build a coal deposit. So this obstacle is very hard to overcome. We know how much fossil fuel is in the earth. We know that one year of killing plants and animals could not have produced that much fossil fuel. In fact, it looks like the fossil fuels occurred over millions of years. For those of you who wonder why God would create dinosaurs and mammoth mammals and kill them off, maybe it was just because he wanted you to drive your little Jetta around town and have fuel in it. I don't know, but it's, prob it's probable to me because it doesn't seem like there's anything else. Otherwise, God was just having fun playing around, you know, seeing what he could make. But if you're a young earth creationist, you've got a huge problem here. It's not, it doesn't make sense. Now, They'll come up with numbers and the, the solar, solar like amount of sunlight was different. But here's a problem. They come back to the canopy theory. Remember we discussed that last week where all the water did come from? If there wasn't enough water on the earth, where did it come from? And they invented this idea. There's a canopy around the earth of water that's just 
defies gravity somehow that just was out there for a long time. It's a life-giving canopy of water that was just suspended in the atmosphere and that's what came down and brought all that extra water that was needed to flood the earth. The problem with that is, first of all, that defies the laws of gravity because precipitation just says when there's water and you get to a certain condensation, it's gotta rain. So God is either have to supernaturally hold it up, okay? and defy gravity, which God never seems to do that. He never seems to defy the laws that he created for some reason. If you do have a ring around the earth in the atmosphere full of oxygen, we talked about this last week, water contains a lot of oxygen. As the solar ultraviolet rays go through it, what you're creating is two problems for the earth. One is it becomes very nitrous and toxic. So life can't exist on earth, including plants. So there goes all the fossil fuel, or it just becomes too cold on earth to support life. Look, this is a lot of science. What it basically comes down to is the old earth creations are saying, it doesn't make sense because you have to defy all of science to get to the result of a global flood. But what that doesn't answer for us is why, why old earth creationists think it was a local flood. Let's go to the next slide. We looked at all of these things and let's just tick off what an old earth creationist is gonna respond. Why does God need an ark? Couldn't you just tell Noah to move to the next, next region, let's call it? And they would tell you, no. God needs an ark because he needs a visible sign in the middle of a desert. Somebody's building a huge boat in the middle of a desert and saying the end is coming, you should believe in God. God never destroys the earth. God never brings down his judgment without sending a prophet to warn the people. Look through the whole Bible, it's always there. And an old earth creationist will tell you that that's what God was really doing. Let's forget the flood for a moment. What was God really doing here? God was telling the earth, I'm going to destroy you. And we're going to end tonight with talking about why would God destroy the earth. But God had made up his mind he's destroying the earth. He's not going to do it without sending a warning. What could be a bigger sign than somebody building a boat in the middle of the desert where it doesn't rain? And he's saying that these animals are going to be on it and I'm going to save the world. I mean, could you send a bigger sign to somebody? I mean, how many years did it take for him to build it, you know? Many, many years. That's a big sign. That's why God did it. That's why God didn't tell Noah just to move. That's their answer, at least. The need for animals to be on the ark. They could have just moved, but again, it's the same thing. God is trying to show his miracle to the people. Why have birds? Same reason, okay? He's destroying a local region, okay? They're not gonna have anywhere to go and they're not gonna have anything to eat, all right? What about the universal judgment? An old earth creationist will say the universal judgment did happen. He did kill everybody. It's just that everybody lived in a local region. What about people who had migrated beyond Mesopotamia? Old Earth creationists, nobody migrated beyond Mesopotamia. It's easy as that. They still live there. What did Christ mean when he said all of mankind would die? Well, all of mankind did die in the flood. And what Christ is really saying is, like I sent you a prophet in the desert to build a boat and you wouldn't listen to me, I'm telling you the end is coming and you're not going to listen to me either until it's too late and then you'd be banging on the door of the ark. That's what Christ was talking about. Let me give you an interesting thing about the duration of the flood. Young earth creationists love to tout that a flood that lasts for a year and a month must be a worldwide flood. Actually, geologists tell you that if you were able to find enough water to flood the entire earth beyond the highest mountains, it would take a lot longer than one year for it to, res to go reside. In fact, they recorded a flood in the San Joaquin Valley in California that covered the entire valley in the 1970s, two to three feet of water. That's not a lot, all right? But it did cover the whole valley, two to three feet. It took about six or seven months for that to, re to recede, okay? So secular geologists who are not even part of the debate would tell us like, if you ever did find enough water, it would take you hundreds of years for that water to go down if it flooded like that. It's not gonna just evaporate slowly, okay? So actually the length of the flood is closer to a regionalized flood than it is a big flood that covered the whole earth.
Lastly, about God's promise of no more floods, I think this one's fairly easy. I think what God was really promising is that he's just never going to kill mankind the same way. He's just not going to kill mankind, period. He's just not going to do that. I think that's what this, this answer was about. But I'm not going to speak for God. I'm not going to put words in his mouth, okay? But I don't see God ever doing what he did when he just said, you know what, I'm starting over. I'm hitting the restart button. This game is not going so good so far. Let's look at this slide right here. Why did God flood the earth? Why? Before we get to that, I'm going to answer Eric, Eric's question and Casey's question about the extent of the flood. But it has to do with the slide that's on the screen. Okay? But I'm going to give you the short answer, then we're going to walk through it on the screen. God only goes to the extent necessary when he does something, especially when it comes to destruction. There's a relationship between what is being destroyed and God's wrath and the reason he's doing it. I'm going to give you some examples so that you can kind of follow this for a second. Some of them are on the screen right there. Let's talk about the boundaries of God's wrath. God does show his wrath in the Bible a number of times. Okay? It's not just in the flood story. Remember every time Joshua went to invade a country when they were basically taking over the promised land? You know, some of the most brutal descriptions of battle take place there, and a lot of people struggle with, I don't understand this God of the Old Testament. Where's the mercy? He's telling them to destroy every man in the city. Other times, he's actually telling them to destroy every man, woman, and child. Other cities, he says, man, woman, child, and the animals. I want the animals destroyed. And there are some cities that he actually tells Joshua, not only do I want you to destroy every person and every animal, I want you to actually destroy the possessions, the material goods in that town. What warrants a different judgment from God? Why is he giving a different judgment on these different towns? What's going on? Does anybody know? Yeah, it's the extent of their sin. How far they were foregone in their sin. It really begs the question that's kind of up there. We know that sin leads to death. It's a promise from God. It led to our banishment from the Garden of Eden. We know that only Christ is able to redeem us to come back and pay the penalty for sin so we can go to heaven. But the question here is, can you ever sin and go so far that there's almost no coming back? Now, I don't mean no redemption under Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But can sin get so bad in its extremity, as Ryan just said, that God has to wipe somebody out? Look at the examples. Why did God destroy the world at Noah's time? If you look at it carefully, the words that God uses, and I'm not, again, I'm not a lingual scholar in Hebrew, the evilness, and Paul talks about this as well, that had existed at the time of Noah, got to the point where it was too far in God's eyes. Jolene. But don't you think that the stuff that's going on now has gotten too I'm not going to speculate on it. Okay. I'll just tell you that the words of the Bible say that it had gotten so bad so evil that evil men expected more evil things and applauded evil things like the difference between right and wrong had been erased basically and man had become so evil in his ways that God felt to save the rest of humanity meaning us that were coming later he had to kill off those people here's some other examples you saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah but notice God always does the same thing what did he do in Sodom and Gomorrah didn't he send somebody in to tell them about it and he said what in Sodom and Gomorrah, if only 10 of you, if only 10 righteous people were to exist in this town, I will not destroy it. And I even make a further pledge for you. If you come out of the town and don't look back, I won't destroy you. I'll let you go in there and get your relatives if you want. See, God's judgment is matched 
to the evilness and apparently in scripture, at least we're taught, a difficult teaching, which I'm not sure I can wrap my arms around for you tonight, that there are times when we get so evil as a society that God has no choice. By the way, Jolene, the answer to your question is God promised us that we will become that evil again. We will become that evil again. Now, is it today or is it another thousand years? I can't tell you. You see the beginnings of it, that's fine. Jesus said to read the signs and to look just like you can see the weather coming and know is it going to be hot or what it's going to be. So look at these things. Can evil go too far? There's a concept called reprobation. That's the idea of evil having gone so far that there's nothing else to do but to stamp it out. You can't redeem it, okay? The boundaries of God's wrath. Like I said, the different instructions to Joshua's army always reflected the people they were conquering. Sodom and Gomorrah. Example, I will save some people, but I'm going to destroy that town. Nineveh, a town that actually repented when they heard the word of God and God spared them. Remember, he told Jonah, I am going to destroy them. He didn't tell Jonah, go in there and if you win some people over, I might change my mind. He told Jonah, go tell them I am going to destroy them. And what changed God's heart? That as soon as Jonah actually figured out the whole fish thing and went to Nineveh, they stripped off their clothes and put on sackcloth and sat with ashes on their head and repented and the Lord had mercy and changed his mind. God's judgment meets out against the evilness that it meets. The Amorite people is an example that he told to Abraham. Abraham, he told that the people of Amorite will be destroyed, but not yet. Their evilness has not yet reached that level in which I will destroy them, but I will destroy them in 400 years. I mean, God knew at what level their evilness had to get before he would destroy them. And I think that Joshua got to destroy them. He was one of the people that got to be destroyed. So, roundabout way of saying the earth had gotten to a point that it was so evil that he had to destroy it. But did he want to destroy the Eskimos? Well, if they were there, he had to kill them. But they weren't there. You see, one of the things that we read about in Scripture, and Eric brought this up last week, and I'm glad he did, Man kept disobeying God in one other way, because God told man over and over, multiply and fill the earth. And man kept hanging out in the same area. In Genesis 1, he says, multiply and fill the earth. Man hangs out a little longer. Multiply and fill the earth, God says, after the flood. He hangs out a little bit longer. Until the Tower of Babel happens a little bit later, and God finally says, you know what? <laughs> If you all speak different languages, you're going to have to scatter and basically forcefully scatters the earth because no one's listening to him. So when an old earth creationist tells you there's very good evidence that everyone lived in Mesopotamia, well, most secular geologists and anthropologists agree. And God's wrath doesn't need to kill the penguins and the giraffes because it only needs to kill mankind. So if you look at it from an old earth creationist view, what they're saying is God has a problem. The world is too evil. His mercy for future generations demands that he kills and takes out this evilness right now and leaves only the righteous ones that are on the boat for a fresh start. But to do that, he doesn't have to kill his entire creation. He just has to kill all of mankind. And mankind just happens to live in Mesopotamia along with a few different animals. So as a sign, as a prophet, just like in all those other cities, like in Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh and every other place that God's going to do this, he says to Noah, Build an ark. Put it in the middle of the desert where everyone can see what I'm about to do. Gather up the animals that are around you. Get on the boat. I'm going to flood this place. But I'm going to flood this place. Not the entirety of the earth. Because I don't need to destroy the earth. I just need to destroy everybody you know. <laughs> and they all live next to you. 
Now, I've said over and over that an old Earth creationist does not need the flood story to justify all the scientific record and data. A young Earth creationist hangs on to it. But I think if you've seen as we've gone over it is over and over and over, the young Earth creationist seems to butt heads with science and their answer has to be to retreat and say, well, you know what, the God that I worship, and they'll throw in some sentences that'll say something after that. Whereas the old Earth creationist is saying, you know what, maybe the words in your Bible, you're reading an English version and you're not really understanding that those words have multiple meanings. Why would God lie? Why would God contradict himself? Why would God contradict the laws of science which he created? Can't we look at the world as it is, science as it is, and understand that God created that? And just like his word is literal and unchanging and always true, couldn't his creation be just as true? Shouldn't they be consistent? For our own good. Why that's for our own good? Some people say because he wanted us to diversify the population and spread out. I don't know. Part of it was because we were his creation. He wanted us to actually create and multiply. But I know that God never gives a commandment that's not for our own good. So I can say with confidence it's for our own good. And then the fact that he repeats it over and over and actually has to intervene in human history to scatter the languages to get us to do it shows me that he believes us for our own good. But I don't know. I mean, I think genetically we had to move out and, and do other things, but that, that might be the wrong answer. I'll admit that that's a hard one. I'm not sure. There is, a, there is some notes in here about why it is, and I can talk to you about it afterwards. I did read a couple paragraphs, but I'm not so sure that they... They bowled me over with like overwhelming, like, oh, that's the reason. And what a brilliant idea. I think we'd probably have to ask him. Yeah, there's, you know, I, I will tell you that it has something to do with the, the whole concept of reprobation and evil growing among itself. But I just don't know why scattering us and having us multiply and spreading out the whole earth somehow changes that. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I'm not that wise. But I know that God in his wisdom has a reason because he keeps telling us to do it. Okay. I think after two weeks studying the flood... That kind of wraps up our discussion on the flood. What I think this gives us is a couple things. I want to put it in perspective of why we spent our time studying the flood, because you know that I'm a proponent of not wasting time that God has given us. We need to learn and use it for reason. Here's the context. I told you that the secular world laughs at Christianity because they think the flood is so improbable scientifically that it's a myth. When I was growing up in the church, my church taught me that the first 11 chapters of Genesis until just after the flood were a myth. We were not to take them seriously. My soul rejects that concept that the Bible is God's word. It's all literal or it's all not. We're not going to pick apart pieces and say the first 11 chapters were mythical. But at the same time, I didn't have any of my own answers because the scientific world was laughing at the Bible and I was sitting in college geology and geography and all the classes I could take to avoid biology and physics. Anything that had to do with rocks was better than <laughs> balancing equations in chemistry. So I was taking all these rock classes and trying to understand how this all fit if there's really not enough water and there's really not enough, if the fossil record really does go millions of years, what's going on? The old earth creationists at least have an answer that is consistent with the Bible and is consistent with science. They at least can respond to the scientific community with an answer. Maybe now you can too. The young earth creationists, I think, are spending too much time attacking the old earth creationists and calling them heretics. I think they're, they're spending too much time out of, we identified the first week, the motivation is fear. 
They're so worried that the Bible is going to crumble if they let go of their English King James interpretation of it. And I would just invite people who believe in the young earth theory to just consider the same arguments. Does it really matter all that much in the end? Well, to them it does because they've got a lot hanging on it. The fossil record, the mountains, everything, the age of the earth, everything, everything. You talk about even radiometric dating, somehow the flood had something to do with why it doesn't work. You know, the polar ice caps have shifted because of the flood. The polarization of the earth shifted because of the everything is the flood. So it's easy to see why the secular world won't even take them seriously. If you don't think this is relevant, try talking to somebody about Christianity. Because they'll laugh at the religion until you are able to at least talk intelligently about these things. Because we look like a religion of fools that believe the earth was created in just six days, that the flood covered the whole earth. And you know what? I'll tell you right now, it's possible God did those things. But when we open up the dialogue and talk to them and explain to them that it's also possible to read the Bible in a much more, well, much more open way that seems to t embrace what science is discovering and actually might disarm people. And that's really all we're trying to do. We're trying to disarm all the objections and invite people to look at Christianity seriously again. Okay, when we start talking in the next couple of weeks about creation, going backwards now in time, you know, back to an old earth interpretation of creation for a couple of days and what really happened on those days and where do all the species fit in, you're gonna to start to see some amazing things that not only show that the Bible is consistent with science, but that the Bible actually says some things that are so amazing and so ahead of its time that maybe it actually self-authenticates itself and shows people that, hey, you better pay attention to a book that was written so many thousands of years ago that predicts all this stuff would happen before we ever knew anything about it. So that's it. Let's pray, have a little bit of worship, hang out a little bit. Sorry for all the heavy biology tonight. Lord, each week we pray that we might heal the divide in our church between these two diverging views. So first, I apologize if I tend to make fun of one or tend to focus on one more than the other. Because, Lord, in the end, we just really want to discover your truth. But, Lord, the discovery of truth by itself, just for our own sake, I would say is self. We want to know you, Lord, and you want us to know you, and that's important, Lord. But you also commanded us to share your words, to share your son with the rest of the world. And it seems like every time we try these days, Lord, somebody confronts us with another question about how improbable our beliefs are, how the Bible teach us things that just can't seem to be true in our modern wisdom. So Lord, if nothing else, perhaps what we're exploring is just a way to reach out to other people. If nothing else, maybe we're just being equipped to open up the eyes of those who would doubt the Bible just to show them that maybe they haven't really read it correctly or maybe they haven't read it at all. That your word stands true because it is truth. That it's consistent with the science that we discover because we're just discovering more about you and the world that you created. Let that be our primary aim, Lord, not to debate, but to evangelize, not to argue, but to love, and not to really be high-minded in the intellect that we acquire, Lord, but to be humble in sharing ideas with others who think that we've checked out of the debate so many years ago and hid behind our Bibles. I pray, Lord, that it just encourages people in this room to be more open to engaging others, even if they disagree. But in that dialogue, Lord, I'm sure that your spirit will come forth and people will be educated. And whatever the outcome, they'll at least know that Christians have an answer 
a strong answer. It may not be the answer they want to hear, but they can no longer accuse us of having no answer. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.